1984, the film The Natural debuted, starring Robert Redford, Kim Basinger, Glenn Close, and Barbara Hershey, about a young, promising baseball player whose career was sidetracked when a mysterious woman shoots him. But the player, Roy Hobbs, returns to the game years later to defy all the odds and finally make a name for himself, culminating in a Hollywood ending where Hobbs smashes a home run into the lights, creating a fireworks display and angelic aura around the mythical hero. The film was nominated for one Golden Globe and four Academy Awards. People who know the movie might be unfamiliar or vaguely familiar with Bernard Malamud's 1952 novel of the same name, the novel that inspired the film. But the novel has some major differences, especially when it comes to tone and character. In both the film and the novel, Roy Hobbs is propositioned by gamblers and the crooked owner of the team to throw the final game. In the film, Hobbs refuses to sully his character, and despite his life-threatening injury, he smashes a home run to help his team and defy the crooked gangsters. In the novel, however, Hobbs takes the money and throws the game, resulting in a dejected little boy in the final pages who reads of Hobbs' corruption in the paper and cries out, quote, Say it ain't so, Roy. This quote is a riff on the supposed quote from a little boy in 1919 who said, Say it ain't so, Joe, after shoeless Joe Jackson was found guilty of gambling on and throwing the World Series. One other major difference was the relationship between Roy Hobbs and Iris, played by Glenn Close in the film. In the movie, Iris, an old love interest and mother of Hobbs' child, returns to inspire him out of his slump, and he ultimately chooses Iris in the end. In the novel, Hobbs not only rejects Iris, but ends up severely injuring her with a foul ball in his final game. In the film, Roy Hobbs succeeds, and we see him in the end throwing a ball with his son. In the novel, Roy Hobbs is left with nothing except a hard lesson about choices and values. Surprisingly, considering the Hollywood spin on the novel's cutting indictment of baseball and America in the 1940s and 50s, Bernard Malamud, after watching the film version, said it legitimized him as a writer. Even more fascinating than comparing the film to the book is comparing the book to the real-life natural, Eddie Wakekiss, and the controversy that surrounds the comparison. In many ways, the life of 11-year Major League veteran Eddie Wakekiss, just like the life of fictional Roy Hobbs, was a mystery. But in performing a bit of biographical and literary detective work, we can both shed light on the origins of Roy Hobbs and provide a more well-rounded, three-dimensional picture of Eddie Wakekiss, a man most people have never heard of, but who was, at one time, dubbed the natural and voted the best first baseman in Philadelphia Phillies history, and who was shot by a mysterious woman in a hotel room with a rifle, which altered the trajectory of his career and life.
Many people today, when asked to describe Dr. Frankenstein's monster, will paint a picture of a dumb, thuggish brute, and will in fact refer to him as Frankenstein. When in truth, Mary Shelley's quote-unquote monster from the 1818 novel was highly intelligent, well-spoken, and emotional. Time and the game of telephone created a fiction of the fiction. And if Frankenstein's monster had walked the earth years later, as his story grew distorted, he might have felt like Eddie Waitkiss, who was only 33 years old when Bernard Malamud's novel, The Natural, debuted in 1952. And at this point, Wakis had played eight seasons, had been an all-star twice, and had put up very respectable numbers, and was about to experience some unfortunate parallels with the main character of The Natural. But was Malamud's novel really based on the life of Eddie Waitkiss? Malamud never claimed to have used Waitkiss and his incident as the inspiration for his novel. In fact, Malamud said the opposite, that he had drawn on many incidents, and that Roy Hobbs was an amalgam of many famous players like Babe Ruth, Bob Feller, Joe Jackson, and Ted Williams. Malamud said that Roy Hobbs was a combination of, quote, Feller's youthful innocence, Ruth's hungry prowess, Williams' hostility and pride, and Jackson's natural but corruptible talent. End quote. Still, considering the inciting incident of the book, and that Wykus's shooting occurred three years before the debut of The Natural, it's hard to ignore the parallels. And, in fact, many journalists, columnists, and book reviewers wrote extensively on the connection. According to Rob Edelman in his article on the comparison, quote, Countless observers have assumed, and casually reported, that the entire premise of the natural is directly linked to the Wakekiss shooting, end quote. Edelman then goes on to list baseball experts, authors, and journalists who did just that. In many ways, Eddie Wakekiss was more complex than Roy Hobbs, who comes off as two-dimensional at times. But with any story, it's important to identify what the main character desires. For Roy Hobbs, there was no question. He told both Harriet Byrd, the woman who shot him, and Iris, that what he wanted more than anything was to walk down the street and have people say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best there ever was. For Eddie Wakis, this answer wasn't so clear. From his daughter, Ronnie, quote, Here's this poor man who a lot of people around him really don't know. What did he want out of life? He once told me he didn't get out of life what he wanted. But what was it? End quote. So, did Major League ball player Eddie Wakis desire what Roy Hobbs desired? Of course he did. Of course, most, if not all, major league players and prospects, consciously or unconsciously, at some level, shared Roy Hobbs's dream. This may seem like a presumption, but consider what has been possible and proven throughout major league history. Consider that any player who has reached the major leagues, or has been considered a prospect, has the inherent ability necessary for greatness. 
If you can hit two or three home runs off a major league pitcher, you can hit 40. If you can get a base hit two out of 10 times, you can get a base hit three or four out of 10 times. Any player at any time can turn a career that's good enough into one that is phenomenal. And there are loads of examples of good enough suddenly transforming into outstanding. Now, everything that I say in this podcast about major league players, I say with the understanding that even to flirt with the notion of making it in the big leagues means you are an outstanding athlete. And this was true for Jose Bautista, who had made it to the big leagues and managed to stay there for six seasons. But compared to the other elites at this level, he was doing okay. For those first six seasons, Bautista hit 59 home runs, which was less than 10 per year, and his combined batting average for the time was 218. Then, something changed. The so-so player tweaked his swing and his timing, and in 2010, Jose Bautista led the entire major leagues in home runs with 54, and he hit 124 RBIs. The next season, he hit 43 home runs and 102 RBIs with a 302 batting average. Bautista would make the all-star team for six straight seasons and finish his career with 344 home runs, good for 101 all-time. Then there's Lefty Old Duel, who was just hanging on in the minors in 1919 when the Yankees gave him a shot. But Old Duel didn't pan out. For the next nine years, he kicked around the minor leagues until something clicked tremendously because in 1929, at the age of 32, a la Roy Hobbs, Lefty Old Duel led the league with a ridiculous 398 batting average. The next year he batted 383, then 336, then 368. He finished with a lifetime batting average of 349, good for the sixth best batting average ever. And how about this guy? A major league pitcher who, if his career had continued the way it went his first five seasons, you might not know his name. But if you know baseball, you definitely know his name now. During his first five seasons, this pitcher tallied a 49-47 and 47 record, with an earned run average over that time of 373. Not bad, but not great. Well, this 6-foot, 10-inch pitcher, known as the Big Unit, won 19 games in 1993. He'd go on to win 19 or more games six times, lead the league in ERA four times, and lead the league in strikeouts nine times. And for Randy Johnson, whose career went from good to phenomenal, there are probably people who see him walking down the street and think, there goes one of the greatest pitchers who ever lived. There are endless stories like this. And ball players grow up knowing these stories. Eddie Wakis would have grown up knowing the story of Lefty O'Doul and Vazzy Dance, who had an equally impressive turnaround. And further swelling Eddie Wakis's dreams and hopes for himself 
would have been the praise he received from players, managers, scouts, and the press. Sports writer Fred Berry noticed young Wakus's fluid, graceful swing and dubbed him the natural. And Wakus was just as smooth at first base, earning a second nickname, the Fred Astaire of first baseman. So would Eddie Wakus have won it what Roy Hobbs won it? What these two men, one real, one fictional, would have had in common with other future ballplayers was the constant cultural influence and addiction of wanting to be a mythical American hero. Think of most professions, medicine, architecture, design, the culinary arts, writing. There is no mass shared euphoria like there is in sports, or music, or perhaps theater. To love playing baseball is one thing, but to see these mythical figures, Ruth, Gehrig, Matthewson, Cobb, to understand their feats, to experience their influence on thousands, even millions of people, and then to think, maybe I can be a part of this exclusive club, this pantheon of gods. Just simply a part of it. And then to know, wow, I am good enough. People are telling me I'm good enough to be part of this club. And hold on. Others who were good enough at some point became great. Maybe that can be me. And to be sure, Eddie Wakis could have followed many different paths in his life, as he was not the typical baseball player. Richie Ashburn, one of the great Philadelphia Phillies, said of Wakis, quote, He wasn't the regular normal ball player. He was almost an aberration. He read Latin, loved poetry and classical music, and was an expert in ballroom dancing. Sometimes, looking back at all his talents and interests, I used to think it was a shame he had to play baseball. End quote. Eddie Wakis was an avid reader, a Civil War and World War II buff. At Cambridge Latin High, Wakis became an honor student, graduating sixth in a class of 600. He learned German, French, and Polish to go along with the Lithuanian and English he spoke at home. And he was a star of the debate team. According to his sister, if his mother had not died when he was 14, Wakis would have definitely gone to college, and that college could have been Harvard. But none of these other pursuits could have had the appeal and hopes, however unlikely, of mythical greatness. Now, did Eddie Wakis ever say this or admit this to himself? I don't know. In many ways, Wakis was as closed off and tight-lipped as Roy Hobbs, who often spoke in vague or terse replies. I do know that Eddie Wakis was good at pushing his feelings down, which would have led to two significant consequences. First, this would have made it hard for him to truly connect with others. Second, this repression would have made it more difficult for him to know exactly what he wanted. There's no better example of this massive repression than what happened to Wakis when he was eight years old. He'd begun playing baseball with friends in the fields around Cambridge when he was very young, and for several years he played barehanded because, as a child of struggling Lithuanian immigrants, things like baseball gloves were an extravagance. But then, 
When he was eight, Eddie's father, a butcher, brought home a first baseman's glove. Little Eddie was so appreciative of his father's gift, he couldn't admit that he was a pitcher and this was a first baseman's mitt. But even more significant was the fact that the glove his father brought home was for a left-handed thrower, and Eddie was right-handed. For anyone listening who's ever played a sport, you've probably tried once or twice to use your other hand. You know how absolutely difficult this is. Eddie Wakis' urge to suppress his feelings and spare his father from the truth was so strong that instead of conveying the truth in this moment, or any moment, little Eddie switched his position from pitcher to first base, and he learned to throw and bat lefty, and became a left-handed fielder and batter for the rest of his life. There isn't much written about Roy Hobbs' relationship with his father, except that the man he considered cruel and uncaring would occasionally pull him out of a foster home to teach him baseball. Based on historical records, Eddie Wakis's father giving him that first baseman's glove was the extent of his influence. But Wakis received guidance from a source not unheard of at the time, a former major league player named Jack Burns, who just happened to be strolling by the field as Eddie Wakis played with his friends. This was the case with another subject of the Midnight Library of Baseball, Jackie Mitchell, who was taught by a neighbor and major league pitcher I mentioned a few minutes earlier, Dazzy Vance. This notion of local and national celebrities mingling with the common folk was a product of the times. It reminds me of stories of the public walking up to and into the White House and having open conversations with U.S. presidents. The White House was in fact open on and off throughout the 19th century, to the point where, even as late as 1890, Grover Cleveland's nanny would take Cleveland's daughter Ruth out into the lawn where strangers would walk up and fawn over the child. The reasons for this allowed accessibility could be a whole other show, but one clear reason was that while Major League players were often household names in the 20s and 30s, they still made only middle to high middle incomes, which meant when playing and retired, they still lived among everyone else. Jack Burns helped Eddie Wakis for years, but this same level of access and informality that helped Eddie Wakis reach the majors would also contribute to one of the most traumatic moments of his life. Unlike Roy Hobbs, who was shot by the mysterious Harriet Bird before he even had a chance to try out for the Cubs, Eddie Wakis had tucked several successful seasons under his belt by the time he stepped into the hotel room of Ruth Ann Steinhagen. In fact, he made the All-Star team in 1948 and 1949, the year of the shooting. I'll return to the gap between Wakis's first season in 1941 and his second season in 1946. But between 46 and 49, Wakis played quality baseball, and as a happy-go-lucky bachelor, he painted the town as much as he peppered the ball across the field, attending the finest clubs, restaurants, and performances. And all the while, a teenage girl named Ruth Ann Steinhagen 
watched from afar. Surprisingly or unsurprisingly, this wasn't the first time a ball player was stalked and shot by a female fan, and not the first time in Chicago. In 1932, a cabaret girl named Violet Popovich Valley found out where Cubs shortstop Billy Jurgis was staying, entered his room, and shot him twice for not going out with her. She left a note in her room which read, quote, To me, life without Billy isn't worth living, but why should I leave this life alone? I'm going to take Billy with me. End quote. Jurgis made a full recovery, but nothing much changed in terms of baseball's outlook on fans or the casual proximity between players and the public. Critics and historians who compared the stories of Eddie Wakis and Roy Hobbs seemed to see Roy Hobbs' attempted assassin as mysterious, without reason, while, according to Rob Edelman, quote, there was nothing mysterious about Ruth Ann Steinhagen, end quote. I think the opposite is true, for there is a clear explanation in both the book and the film for why the lady in black, Harriet Byrd, tries to kill Roy Hobbs. The answer lies within several conversations Byrd had with Hobbs. When they first meet, she asks him what he hopes to accomplish, and this is when he responds by saying he wants to walk down the street and have everybody say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best there ever was. And then Malamud writes, quote, She gazed at him with touched and troubled eyes. Is that all? she asked him. What else is there? Hobbs replied. Then Harriet Byrd slowly shook her head. Isn't there something over and above earthly things, some more glorious meaning to one's life and activities? she said. End quote. Roy Hobbs had no different reply from what he'd already said and it seemed to irritate, if not anger, the mysterious woman. Later in the story, Iris brings up this same question of values, at what one's values are, versus Roy Hobbs's single obsession of beating people's records. To Harriet Byrd, Roy Hobbs was doing this amazing thing, but his reasons were empty, and she couldn't stand it. Even if not condonable, Harriet Byrd's reasoning for stalking and shooting him seemed more reasonable than what occurs with Ruth Ann Steinhagen, who watched Eddie Wakis, but always from a distance. Her friend urged her to say hi, to introduce herself, or at least wave, but after every game, when Wakis emerged from the ramp, Steinhagen would hide behind a pillar. This inability to engage in any way, one doctor said, was the problem. If she had ever met Wakis, she probably wouldn't have gone through with the shooting. But for Steinhagen, fantasy had far outpaced reality by the time she'd sent the note to Wakis in 1949. And it wasn't as if no one knew what was going on. For years, Steinhagen had carried out her obsession in front of her family, staring for hours at clippings and photos of Wakis and the shrine she'd made for him in her bedroom. This was a lot but it might have seemed tolerable. But what did her mother and father and sister think when Ruth Ann began setting a place at the dinner table for Eddie Wakis? Or when Wakis was traded to the Phillies, Ruth Ann cried for two days and then told her family she was moving out of the house to be closer to him.
At one point, she told her mother, quote, I'm going to get a gun and shoot Eddie Wakis, and then shoot myself, end quote. Her parents did convince her to see a psychiatrist, but she only went twice. And throughout her obsession, Ruth Ann had a friend who accompanied her to Wrigley Field and was privy to many of Steinhagen's most disturbing thoughts. The friend's name was Helen Foresis, who had her own crush on Johnny Schmitz. Because Ruthann was not in touch with reality, she seemed to have no trouble conveying her plans to others. When she came up with the idea to shoot Wakis, she at first wanted a handgun, but needed a permit, so she then settled on a twenty-two caliber rifle from a pawn shop, and her friend Helen stood by her side when she bought the gun. Helen was at the game that day when Ruthann told her the plan. But Helen later said she thought the plan was just a lark, that Ruth Ann didn't have the nerve to go through with it. Steinhagen settled into her hotel room and wrote a note for Eddie Wakis, which she gave to the front clerk to pass on to him. Quote, Dear Mr. Wakis, it's extremely important that I see you as soon as possible. We're not acquainted, but I have something of importance to speak to you about. I think it would be to your advantage to let me explain it to you. I'm leaving the hotel the day after tomorrow. I'd appreciate it greatly if you could see me as soon as possible. My name is Ruth Ann Burns, and I'm in room 1297A. I realize this is a little out of the ordinary, but as I said, this is rather important. Please come soon. I won't take up much of your time, I promise. End quote. When Wakis read the note, he was immediately apprehensive. He asked the man at the front desk for the name of the girl who'd given him the note, and the man confirmed that she'd signed her name as Ruth Ann Burns. Well, it just so happened that Eddie Wakis went to high school with a classmate named Ruth Burns, and his mentor at Cambridge Field was former ball player Jack Burns. And the address she'd given the desk clerk was Portland Street in Boston, which is the street where Wakis grew up. This was 1949, not 2023, where you can find information with the click of the button. Ruth Ann Steinhagen had done her homework. Still dubious, but thinking this might be an old acquaintance or friend from home, Wakis took the note to some of his buddies and talked it over. They told him to see what she wanted, and so he did. Steinhagen had everything ready, the bullet in the rifle, the rifle standing up in the corner of the closet. Then she drank two whiskey sours and a daiquiri and fell asleep until Wakis called and knocked on the door. I know it's late for an athlete, she said. Come on in. Eddie Wakis walked by her and quickly sat in a small armchair near the window. That's when Steinhagen walked to the closet. I have a surprise for you, she said, and pulled the gun. She told police that Wakis was shocked when he saw the rifle. What goes on here, he asked. Is this some kind of joke? What have I done? You are not going to bother me anymore, she said, and shot him in the chest. To police, she said, quote, I just looked at him. He kept saying, baby, why did you do that? I asked him where he'd been shot, and he said I shot him in the guts. I don't know why. I thought, well, now it's time to shoot myself. 
and I told him. Then I tried to find the bullets, but I couldn't find them, and I lost my nerve. End quote. If Steinhagen had shot herself, Eddie Wakis most likely would have died, as his injuries were substantial, and she wouldn't have been able to call for help. And, according to Sergeant Nick Wrighty, quote, It's lucky for Mr. Wakis she failed to commit suicide, or he may have had a lot of trouble clearing himself of the scandal. End quote. Steinhagen went on to tell the police, quote, The doctor and house detective came, and it was so silly. Nobody came out of their rooms. You would think they would all come out running. I got mad. I kept telling them I shot Eddie Wakis, but they didn't know who Eddie Wakis was. I thought they were just plain dumb if they didn't know who Eddie Wakis was. End quote. While Steinhagen was taken to jail, Eddie Wakis was rushed to the hospital. He was shot in the chest, just below the nipple, and the small twenty-two caliber bullet slipped by major arteries, organs, and veins. Any other caliber bullet, the doctors agreed, would have caused instant death. At two in the morning, Wakis was more stable, but still in bad shape, when the police came up the stairs with Ruth Ann Steinhagen to get a positive ID. Waitkiss saw the shadow in the doorway, and a moment later, there she was again, walking toward him. From Waitkiss's perspective, he couldn't see the detective holding her back. From author John Theodore, quote, In a matter of seconds, Waitkiss went into shock, and his body struggled to hold itself together. His blood pressure dropped to 80 over 40. His pulse raced to over 130, and he coughed up blood. End quote. Ultimately, Wakis would undergo four intensive surgeries and remain in the hospital for a month, except for the two-week mark, which is when he had to leave to attend the trial of Ruth Ann Steinhagen. The case was fairly straightforward, and Steinhagen was deemed insane with a diagnosis of schizophrenia in an immature individual. She would spend three years at Kankakee State Hospital, receiving electroshock therapy, among other treatments, before being deemed cured and released to the public. But prior to her release, in a hearing, she was asked what she'd do if she got out. She said she'd finish what she started. Quote, Eddie is the only one worth killing. End quote. The shooting was a bit of a wake-up call for the era and certainly for Eddie Wakis. Just as Bernard Malamud hoped his novel, The Natural, would shine a light on the reality of America in the middle of the 20th century. According to John Theodore, quote, In 1949, baseball was very much the American dream, end quote. Everything was presented as clean, wholesome, and baseball was innocent, with the rose-tinted perspective that everyone could get along with everyone else. After the shooting, baseball teams finally began to add more security and security measures to place buffers between the players and fans. It was a common sense thing, a human thing, but also a financial thing, as baseball players were becoming, more and more, valuable investments. A bit after the shooting, the Phillies manager Eddie Sawyer remarked, quote, What a break against us. We've got Dick Sisler to take Eddie's place, but Wakis had everything, end quote. 
And indeed, Eddie Wakus' absence seemed to affect the Phillies, who did terribly that season. When he was finally able to move around in August, Wakus visited his teammates in Pittsburgh, where the sight of him, according to player Andy Samanek, quote, shook us all up. He looked like a skeleton, nothing but skin and bones, end quote. About his recovery, the usually glib Wakus said, quote, the last five weeks were the most rugged that I've spent in my life. If I had to go through it again, I almost feel like saying it would have been better if she hadn't missed. End quote. A few weeks later, the Phillies celebrated Eddie Wakus Day. He received a standing ovation from 20,000 fans and many gifts. Again, this was 1949. Players were not getting million-dollar contracts. So Eddie Wakus received such gifts as a new Dodge convertible, a television set, two radios, golf clubs, luggage, watches, and a full wardrobe. He said in front of the microphone, quote, I don't know what the future holds for me, but you have given me something I will always remember, end quote. With the help of a trainer named Frank Whitecheck, Eddie not only recovered, but got whipped into the best shape of his life, and in 1950 had the best season of his career, and helped the Phillies whiz kids reach the World Series. He played the most games he'd ever play, 154, and scored 102 runs with 182 hits, and he won, hands down, Comeback Player of the Year. But the season had exhausted him. He needed to rest more and more, and the next year was not nearly as good. Also, Eddie Wakus was keeping a lot of secrets. For instance, he later said about his PTSD, quote, Each time someone steps on an empty paper cup and it makes a loud pop, I want to hit the deck, especially during batting practice when the park is empty, end quote. With this remark, Wakus may have been referring to the shooting or the war. While Roy Hobbs' career was immediately interrupted by guns and bullets, Eddie Wakus's career was significantly sidetracked by World War II. Later, Eddie's wife would say that he talked more about the war than about baseball, than about anything. But there's talking, and then there's talking. He went to training in 1943, and was shipped to the Pacific in 1944, where he led amphibious assaults on New Guinea, Moratai, Bougainville, and Luzon. Wakus and fellow soldiers had to contend with machine gun fire, heavy artillery, mines, and kamikaze aircraft crashing into the beach. Perhaps mirroring the detachment that Wakus and his fellow soldiers would have felt, author C. Paul Rogers casually wrote, quote, After Manila was secured, Wakus worked with his outfit to repair Risel Stadium, which could hold up to 30,000 GIs. After the booby traps and a corpse were removed and foxholes and bomb craters were filled in, he and his mates played games in t-shirts, fatigues, and combat boots. End quote. But what kind of soldier was Eddie Wakus? Angelo Dolce, who survived many rough situations with Wakus, wrote of one experience, quote, Mortar shells were exploding all around us in the night, and the Japanese were tossing hand grenades near us. One landed near a foxhole, 
exploding by one of our guys, Ed Schultz. We heard him screaming in pain. Ed Wakis left the relative safety of our foxhole in the black of night to see what he could do for Schultz. This was the kind of soldier, the kind of person Wakis was, especially in the heat of battle. The explosion ripped open a long 10-inch gash in Schultz's leg. Ed Wakis always thought well in crucial situations, and he found some safety pins from Schultz's gear and closed the wound in the dark and saved Schultz's life. I've always thought Ed should have received a medal for what he did under fire to save Ed Schultz. End quote. Recalling a different kind of story, Dolce went on to remember, quote, We were ambushed. Mortar and rifle fire came from all around us. I remember Ed telling me we must stay together. All of a sudden, everything was still. In the distance, we noticed a cover that looked like a door made of grass. It was a Japanese pillbox. We could barely see a head that looked out. It was a sniper. Ed said to me, Angelo, you've got to get him. We were all scared stiff. I took aim, and when he stuck his head out again, I fired. We waited a long while to go ahead and check to see if I'd killed him. When I finally got to the pillbox, the sniper was dead. I remember he was wearing a new uniform, and when I searched him, I found pictures of his family, a wife, two girls, and a son. About that time, Ed came. He took a long look at the photos, and we looked at each other, not saying a word for several minutes. We each had our own thoughts, but I'm sure they were the same, and they never left us. I cried and cried every night, thinking of those Japanese kids whose father I shot. But Ed was always there for me. He kept me sane. If he were not around, I would have flipped. End quote. It's interesting to note that this same man, Eddie Wakis, who cared for and supported Angelo Dolce in the most stressful and intimate of times, also did not respond to any of the many letters Dolce sent him after the war. Wakis said he understood the time lost due to the war. Quote, everyone went, end quote. In other words, it's what happened, along with whatever horrible, unbearable memories came with it, and now it's time to move on. In Malamud's work, Roy Hobbs gets shot at 19, then disappears for 16 years. Eddie Wakis did not technically disappear after the war and the shooting, but a part of him did. He got on with his life. He married Carol Webble, who cared for and supported him after the shooting. But he never really talked to anyone about the traumatic parts of the war or about the shooting, what it did to him. After his slump in 1951, Eddie Wakis had a good season in 52, hitting 289 with 144 hits and playing most of the season. But he was also aware that Ruth Steinhagen had just been released from the state hospital. From C. Paul Rogers, quote, he confided in Russ Meyer that her release made him very uneasy because she had apparently told the Chicago police after her arrest in 1949 that she would kill him for sure if he ever got married, end quote. His son, Ted, said of his father, quote, 
he went from being outgoing to almost paranoid about meeting new people, end quote. When Ruth Ann Steinhagen was released, she vanished from the public eye, leading a quiet life and living with her sister. She refused to comment to reporters on the shooting ever again, and there's no evidence she ever worked or married. From author John Theodore, quote, She was able to live in the shadows of society for decades, quietly living in guarded privacy, end quote. But in addition to the mystery of why Ruth Steinhagen did what she did, is the mystery of why Eddie Wakis's career turned out the way it did, and how what happened next paralleled what happened to Roy Hobbs, even though Malamud had written the fiction years before the reality. What I'm referring to is the ball player with ability and promise being ignored by his team. When he signed on with the Knights, Roy Hobbs was kept on the bench for weeks, despite the fact that his manager and teammates knew he could crush the hell out of the ball. This led to Hobbs further isolating himself. Eddie Wakis, despite hitting 289 with 144 hits for the Phillies in 1952, was kept on the bench for much of the 1953 season, as the Phillies chose power instead of average. Still, in the 81 games he did play, Wakis managed a 291 average. Most major leaguers would probably tell you they'd be thrilled to finish a season with a 291 average. But the Phillies were not thrilled and traded Eddie Wakis to the Baltimore Orioles, where he managed only 95 games, but still hit for a 283 average. Ever since the shooting, Wakis had been more tired and sore than before. And maybe he would have tired himself out but he didn't get the chance. The more Wakey sat on the bench, the more resentment built, and the more he turned to alcohol. If Baltimore or some other team had put their faith in him, Wakey might have rallied and had one, two, or three more years like 1950. But this didn't happen. Decreased playing time meant more resentment, less training, and his body declining more and more. And also... This entire time, Eddie Wakis smoked like a chimney. By 1955, nobody wanted Eddie Wakis, and so he retired. He often said there was no sentiment in baseball, but Wakis must have been heartbroken. He took a job, which he ended up hating, as vice president of sales at a trucking firm named Eastern Freightways. In 1960, Eddie Wakis and his wife Carol separated. According to John Theodore, quote, For the first time in his life, Eddie Wakis refused to come back. He lacked the stamina to shape his life without baseball. End quote. Shortly after the divorce, he experienced what the doctors called a nervous breakdown. He spent time at the VA hospital and then went on to live with his sister. Wakis broke ties with all his friends and spent less and less time with his kids. He would have sunk into oblivion if not for a chance opportunity from, of all people, one of the greatest hitters who ever lived, Ted Williams, who was Bernard Malamu's inspiration for Roy Hobbs' world outlook. As Ted Williams was recorded saying, quote, All I want out of life is that when I walk down the street, folks will say, There goes the greatest hitter that ever lived. End quote. 
1967, the quiet, isolated Wakeus found some connection and purpose outside Lakeville, Massachusetts, as the head hitting instructor for the Ted Williams baseball camp. From author John Theodore, quote, In the late 1960s, the Ted Williams camp was the Yankee Stadium of the baseball camp world. Each summer, more than 200 boys from all 50 states and from as far away as Japan, England, Switzerland, France, and Puerto Rico made the trek to the serenity of the Massachusetts woods to improve their baseball skills the Ted Williams way, end quote. And in this camp, run by arguably the greatest hitter of all time, Eddie Wakis was the lead hitting instructor. From Ted Williams, quote, I always knew Eddie Wakis was a great ball player, but he was a hell of a man too. The kids at the camp loved him. He was magnificent with them, and we were truly lucky to have him. End quote. Wakis was so unassuming, so down to earth and private about his past, that many of the kids in camp at first had no idea he was a former major league player, or that he helped lead and inspire the Philadelphia Phillies to reach the World Series in 1950. But for Wakis, Imparting his years of wisdom and talking baseball was enough. Again from Theodore, quote, The Ted Williams camp clearly was a safe house for Wakis. It forced him to stay in the present. It kept him centered. Baseball, the ultimate here-and-now game, re-entered his life when he needed it the most. And once again, it filled his days. End quote. And just like he'd been there for his World War II buddies and for his major league teammates, Eddie Wakis became a support for the kids in camp, many of whom were lonely and homesick at night. From former camper Mark Shapiro, quote, Having Eddie there really helped. He was like a surrogate father. We could always go to him if we had any problems. End quote. In 1969, Eddie Wakis was selected by the Philadelphia fans as the greatest first baseman in Philly's history. This was quite an honor, considering the Phillies organization went back to the very beginning of professional baseball. And Wakis had played only three full seasons with the team. After the award, the campers in Massachusetts certainly knew about Eddie Wakis. When he returned to the camp from the ceremony in Philadelphia, the campers and staff surprised Wakis with a party, a cake, a set of bronze bookends, and a standing ovation. Wakis responded, quote, This is where my real friends are. End quote. Except, as was the case with his family and other friends, Wakis still kept some of the most important things about himself to himself. Even though Wakis apparently looked much older than his age, his sickness was a secret. According to Theodore, quote, His death was a shock to his family and friends at the camp. No one knew he had cancer. End quote. Eddie Wakis died in 1972, at the age of 53. He always said there was no sentiment in baseball. Maybe that's part of the reason only two major leaguers showed up at his funeral, and he received no condolence letters from anyone associated with Major League Baseball. But maybe it was also Eddie Wakis and his habit of freezing people out. Still, his wake was packed with people who'd been affected by Eddie Wakis. Current and former campers and staff came from all around to pay their respects 
as did people Wakeas had grown up with. For both Roy Hobbs and Eddie Wakeas, there was, quote, a haunting sense of emptiness while people looked upon them with admiration, end quote. In Malamud's novel, baseball ended up aiding in Hobbs' downfall. For Eddie Wakeas, who was never able to talk about the traumas that deeply affected him, he was, ultimately, able to talk about baseball. And this medium that had turned on him also, in the end, offered him some salvation. That's the end of the show. If you enjoyed this show and my other episodes, please leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcasting hosts. I also welcome suggestions for future shows or other kinds of comments. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pabkin at Pixabay. Good night.